to the Deadline Podcast, our weekly roundup of the great obituaries from the Daily Telegraph. I'm Harry DeKettville. This week, a musical flavour as we talk about Jerry Goffin, one half of the most celebrated and successful pop songwriting partnership outside of Lennon and McCartney. We also talk about Horace Silver, one of the greatest jazz musicians of the post-war era, so a very musical flavour. And there's moustache news and, of course, your letters too. Now, with me as usual is Christopher Howes. Hello, Christopher. Good morning. I'm just back from sunny Cornwall. I went to Buconnock House, which is a marvellous place which has been restored by its owner, Anthony Fortescue, who found it in the year 2000 falling down. It was going to be demolished. Mm-hmm. There'd been a house there since the time of William the Conqueror. and sixty-six and all that. And we were celebrating the marvellous new volume for Cornwall in the Pevsner series by Peter Beecham. That uh, Mr Pevsner, he's very productive, isn't he? He is posthumously. He's, he's published much more than he did during his lifetime, and that's saying something. Absolutely. OK, well, um, I hope you had a lovely trip there. Before we get on to uh, Jerry Goffin, this week let's have a quick round-up. So, uh, on the obits page this week, we featured the lives of Daniel Keyes. Now, Daniel Keyes was the author of Flowers for Algernon, a, a disturbing and best-selling book, which I'm sure many of our readers will, will have read and perused. It was turned into the Oscar-winning film Charlie. It's all about a mentally subnormal man who is transformed into a genius by scientists. Uh, but, uh, unfortunately, he then realises that the transformation might only be temporary. Are you familiar with Flowers for Algernon? No, not one of the things I've read. I'm not sure it's going to be on my bedside list either. But there was a book which was supposed to be non-fiction also by Keyes. Yes, he was very interested in the sort of pathways of the mind, I think. Which one are you thinking of? Uh, Well, I think it's one called Minds of Billy Milligan. I'll tell you why it struck me, because it's very much like a rather preposterous film called The Three Faces of Eve, which came out in 1957, with Joan Woodward in the title role, and she had sort of three persona, a, a, a rather dull, goody Eve White, and a wicked Eve Black, and one more for luck. And really, it didn't really convince me, and I, uh, you know, in, in, in the film version. So when Billy Milligan came along, uh, he had done something terrible to women, and he pleaded a multiple personality. This is a this real is life in, case, right? In the 1970s. The book came out in 1981. OK. Well, I mean, it uh, seems to be pretty well special pleading but the the poor old fellow Milligan ended up despite having <laughs> pleaded that he wasn't responsible mm-hmm. in detention in a so loony he bin, pleaded he had multiple personalities and that it wasn't him what done it guys. it was one of the other personalities how many personalities did he claim to have he had quite a few on on the run but there was one sort of spokesman personality who um, appealed to to the, Mr. Keyes. Well, yes, he appealed to well, he appealed to judge and jury and Mr. Keyes, who wrote this entertaining book about him. Okay. But in the meantime, poor old Milligan had been shoved in the Central Ohio Psychiatric Hospital and mm. he <laughs> escaped and got in touch with Keyes. Said, "I'm a coming and uh, I want your help." Uh, uh, <laughs> it didn't really do any of them any good. Um, he was caught again, poor fellow. Twenty-four personalities, I hear, and I think that Daniel. Well, Keyes, who's he, counting? Yeah, he chronicled every every one. He gave in his book called uh, "The Minds of Billy Milligan." He gave a chapter to each one of these twenty-four voices. Quite I think chapter twenty-three is rather dull. <laughs> well, there you go. So that was Daniel Keyes, a, a fascinating figure, possibly not quite as fascinating as Billy Milligan, a criminal or not, because he was eventually released and freed. I think. Yes. Um, 
a, a man, we should say, who was either truthful or really, I think even his detractors said that he was an astonishingly good actor. So to keep 24 personalities on the go at once would have been quite a feat. I think it's method beyond method. Method beyond the madness, exactly. Yes. There we go. Well, apart from... Uh, uh, Daniel Keyes, we also ran an obituary of Carla Lemel, and she was one of the last links to the silent era of Hollywood, famous for making, uh, unlike in the film The Artist, which was so good recently, a successful transition from the silent era to talkies. She had uh, the first two lines in the film Dracula, which of course uh, a, a landmark, a milestone of film history. She opened the film and the, the, playing the bookish girl reading to her fellow passengers in a coach trundling through the mountains of Transylvania as one does. She looked into her guidebook and said, Among the rugged peaks that frown down upon the Borgo Pass are found crumbling castles of a bygone age. And of course, in one of those crumbling castles are our old chum, Dracul. <laughs> um, but she had a head start in the in the film business. I think you were telling me, Christopher, something to do with her uncle Carl. He founded <laughs> he founded Universal Studios, yes, which always helps. I think that came for a leg up, as it were. And um, she wasn't entirely unaware of this. Uh, she told a story really against herself about being at one of Uncle Carl's parties, where she heard Jack Warner chatting to Albert Einstein about the theory <laughs> of relativity. I have a theory about relativity too, joked Warner. I never employ them. Oh, there you, <laughs> there well, you go. Well, things a change. Oh, yeah, there you go. So Carla Lemel benefited from um, her own uncle Carl, who was, took a different view to Jack Warner and did employ his relatives, and that gave her a head, a head start. She carried on um, doing very well and made that transition to the talkies. Good for her. Now, let's move from talking pre-war talking movies to post-war singing stars as we dial up Telegraph rock critic Neil McCormick to chat about Jerry Goffin. Neil, so great to have you here talking about Jerry Goffin, the lyricist, and his, uh, his songwriting partner and ex-wife, Carol King, said uh, following his death that Goffin's words expressed what so many people were feeling but didn't know what, how to say. Would you go along with that? He was certainly a hugely fresh and... Uh, exciting lyricist who brought into a tradition that was uh, of a time when when songwriting was a kind of uh, sitting at a typewriter craft in a in a building in an office. He brought uh, a, a, an urban quality, a, a fizzing youthful quality to to it. He was he was only. Uh, 21, 22 when he started writing those hits with, with the 17, 18-year-old uh, Carol King. And he spoke in the vernacular of the times. He, he understood the, uh, the people of the moment, but he also was able to communicate these ideas in an emotional way. Now, you say that uh, in your piece that that songwriting partnership he had with Carol King was right up there with Lennon and McCartney. What did they bring? How did they team up? What, what was it so special about their, their, their teamwork? Well, they got together um, when they were very young and they had very complementary skills. Uh, Carol King was a hugely gifted tunesmith and uh, Jerry was a thoughtful, um, smart uh, kid who had real verbal gifts and it could sort of t take a little phrase and expand on it but a lot of those songs they have real content so you've got so he, he they could write songs that are, are like a pop song like the locomotion which is just a dance beat but 
the real reason most of those songs survive, songs like Up on the Roof, is about the doubts uh, a person feels. It's quite an existential song. You know, you're, they're going up on the New York roof to escape the buzz of thoughts and the, the pressures of other people and just find themselves, you know. Um, Will You Still Love Me Tomorrow is an absolutely perfect evocation of the doubt and paranoia that can exist in the heart of a, a, a love song. So it was a very fine, it was a very fine combination that, that divided on very simple lines, a bit like Bernie Taupin and Elton John, rather than Lennon and McCartney. And of course, that his skills, uh, Goffin's skills, allowed him to remain incredibly popular for a very long time, from the 1950s to the mid-1980s. He was writing hit songs for Whitney Houston at the end. How did he main, remain so relevant for so long? Because relevance in pop music is usually to do with the sound and the beat, but you, you all, but every song needs a lyric. And Goffin had a reputation by then, um, a deserved reputation for being a man who could deliver a perfectly honed lyric. It, it's it's really kind of hard to overstate how important that is. You know. A lot of songwriters, melodic songwriters, just kind of make noises. We know that, that Paul, when Paul McCartney first wrote Yesterday, it, he just sang Scrambled Egg. You know, he, he just had sounds to fill in, and, and he had to work hard to find the words to do that. And a lot of pop music falls down on the paucity of its lyrical content. If you can write lyrics that elegantly fit perfectly with the syncopated melodic line and actually have some comment, then you have struck uh, pop gold. It is the rarest of things. And so there would be constantly be new um, uh, writers and producers and artists that would be working on things and that would want somebody who they knew could deliver a lyric with some meaning. And uh, Jerry Goffin was one of those. Well, Neil, thanks so much for coming in and talking to us about Jerry Goffin. Christopher, you a Jerry Goffin fan? On and off, yes. I was. I think it's the music, actually, oddly enough, which I was humming on the on the way to work this morning. Well, the music for which he was not responsible at all. Precisely <laughs> so. Yes, the, the lyrics um, escape me more. Except there's one rather controversial song which has the title "He Hit Me." It felt like a kiss. This was from 1962. The Crystals. You may remember it. Um, now, before letters, let's have a moustache news roundup. This was the week we covered the death of Chester Nez. Now, Chester Nez wasn't a British serviceman. In fact, he was a Navajo Indian who helped create an unbreakable oral code that confounded the Japanese in the Pacific. Now, are you familiar with the extraordinary story of the Navajo code talkers, Christopher? Well, I was very pleased to, to catch up with it in the obituary. It's a tremendous story. Really, the basic... Uh, fact is that Navajo is not a very easy language to understand, whether you're Japanese or English. And I think one of the elements in the language is its tonal range, which has specific uh, significance, uh, if you want to say things. So if you combine that with even quite a simple code, uh, you get something which seems unbreakable. Somebody said that 
by the time they'd finished with it, um, it sounded like a strange gurgling noise interspersed with other sounds resembling the call of a Tibetan monk and the sound of a hot water bottle being emptied. And this fellow, Chester Nez, was absolutely essential to the whole operation, being a fluent Navajo speaker. I suppose the, the problem was that the English uh, messages in the American military machine in the Second World War were being too easily cracked. Is that the point? They're being intercepted well, and deciphered. I mean, these things are mind-bogglingly complicated. I've just been reading about the Knox brothers, not the Marx brothers, the Knox brothers, and one of them was a, a code maker and breaker. And what you have to do is look for patterns, even when the code constantly changes. And if you have the same language set as the code talker, then it's easier to spot the... Of course, inevitably. But you wouldn't guess it was a Navajo, would you? Exactly. So what? So they would have to have a, a Navajo setter of the code and a Navajo breaker of the code at, at the end to receive it and decode it. They were tremendously useful, wasn't they? Weren't they? Because Navajo code talkers participated in every marine assault in the Pacific between 1942 and 45. So it wasn't just some kind of frippery. That I mean, it was absolutely essential to the marine advance through the Pacific. And I suppose that it never was cracked. It's not always easy to tell in these secret worlds, but this is a, a renowned success in cryptography. Yeah, apparently the Japanese cracked every other code used by the US military except for the Navajo code. One Marine signal officer observed, were it not for the Navajos, the Marines would never have taken Iwo Jima, which is, of course, such a an icon of the marine assault through the Pacific. We also covered squadron leader Larry Lewis, and he picked up the uh, Distinguished Flying Medal as an air gunner before training as a pilot. And then um, he picked up air crash survivors from behind Japanese-held Japanese lines in Siam and was awarded the DFC. Uh, who else did we do in military world this week? Colonel Walter Page. He was an officer, an army officer, of course, who won the military cross. Um, for leading a narrow escape during the fall of Singapore. And I think the fall of Singapore must have been one of those military catastrophes mm. which just would have been so horrific to be caught up in the middle of it because huge numbers of people, huge confusion and things going very, very badly wrong and a, a real sense that the, your capacity as an individual to master your own fate was totally nullified yes. and you had no option but to submit in huge numbers. Not Colonel Walter Page, though, because he led an escape away from Singapore. Christopher, tell us how it happened. Well, they, they managed to uh, find a lifeboat on a burnt-out ship in the harbour and they stocked it with food and water from a warehouse and got away just in time, but less than half an hour before the surrender. Wow. And the sea was, of course, full of uncharted minefields. Uh, Page was busy rowing, bailing and steering by compass all night. But then they luckily ran into a Royal Navy cruiser, is that right? That's true. Uh, and they were evacuated to Java, but then they had a lucky uh, stroke there. Uh, they were crossing the... Indian Ocean in the only boat available, an old Chinese river steamer. Oh, really? So the sort of Royal Navy cruiser had dumped them at Java and said, make your own way from here, lads. Exactly. They were bound for Colombo in Ceylon, um, which is a, a thousand miles from the nearest land uh, during their crossing. On this old river cruiser? <laughs> in the open seas. Bloody hell. And they were attacked by a submarine. Oh, God. But... 
Well, what happened then is that the submarine's torpedoes passed harmlessly under the boat precisely because it was flat-bottomed and useless for sea navigation. <laughs> so their riverboat had a flat bottom. This appealed to some of our readers. We, we got a letter from somebody called Tom Tooley of Poulton Le Fylde in Lancashire, I expect it is. Yeah. He was saying that he was on a cruiser which escorted a troop convoy going to Singapore, mm -hmm. arriving just in time to deliver 8,000 soldiers straight into the hands of the Japanese. Oh, but he, Mr. Tooley, was lucky enough to leave Singapore, steaming away happily through the Java Straits, when they received a signal to join the American, British, Dutch and Australian ships in the Java Sea. Luckily, three hours later, this order was cancelled and they were ordered back to Colombo Five or six days later, that fleet that he was due to join was totally wiped out by Japanese bombers. So there we are. It's what happens in war. Luck. luck. Some people are lucky. Napoleon knew that, didn't he, famously? He ran out eventually. He ran out eventually. Um, we also carried the obit military moustache news this week of Commander Chris Gobi. He died aged 71. He was a naval, naval hydrographer, and he was actually one of those... Uh, naval kind hearts who saved, plucked from the sea some floundering sailors, in, in this case a Taiwanese boat in the Indian Ocean. So not, not very different to uh, the experience of Colonel Walter Page. And he flung himself into the sea to uh, help with that rescue and was uh, decorated for his efforts, for his bravery. Also Commander Bill Hart, he was a fleet air arm pilot, shot down in Korea. But he went on, he survived the experience, went on to run, well, I rather like the sound of, the Inter-Service Hovercraft Unit. Now, mm. I didn't know there was such a thing, but he was in charge of it. I confess that we've got something of a soft spot on the Obits page for hovercrafts. They always seem to be accompanied by eccentric types. I don't know, eccentric vehicles, eccentric types. Um, we once did know a bit of a chap called Michel Pessel, a French adventurer. In 1972, he made an expedition... Uh, up 1,200 miles of the Kali Gandakai River in Nepal, until then considered unnavigable, the team used tiny hovercraft yes. to pass between sections, including a gorge flowing between the 26,000-foot-high peaks of Annapurna and Dalogiri. Adventures described in Pestle's The Great Himalayan Passage, Across the Himalayas by Hovercraft. You don't get many memoirs called that, do you? I do that. The more the merrier. The more the merrier. He claimed uh, to have pioneered the sport of shooting up rapids, which I just think is sensational. <laughs> I mean, the people... Send more air. Yeah, exactly. The thing, Marvellous men in their flying machines, even more balmy men in their hovercraft machines. So uh, we think of Michel Pessel and Commander Bill Hart. And lastly this week in Moustache News, Lieutenant Colonel Cliff Green. Now, he was an officer who won the George Medal by clipping the wings of deadly butterflies and filling the bomb cemetery. Why? How? What am I talking about? He was a bomb disposal expert. I mean, terrifying, terrifying business in the Second World War for two reasons. One, the UXB experts, unexploded bomb experts, weren't really experts at all. Their training was very minimal. And B, it was made perfectly clear to them, I think, Christopher, wasn't it, that they were expendable? They certainly were told that. Uh, they were given a bit of training, but well, the yeah. workings of German bombs weren't really understood. I suppose and they hadn't so, been dropped on us before, so... Well, you have to find one which hasn't gone off. Yeah. And then, <laughs> then you've got to try and make it safe. Yeah. God, uh, how horrible. But so, anyway, our, our man Green... Yeah, he went through bomb disposal course number one, which I see was noted unofficially called What, what Goes Up Must Come Down. <laughs> yes, indeed, that's perfectly true. 
Um, so what did this... Uh, what did, one senior officer said that... Gosh, he asked, didn't he? He said, why is it us, Gov, who have to go and... Uh, why is it us newbies who have to become bomb disposal experts? Well, they said that the other officers had a lot more training and were quite expensively trained, and therefore it was a very good idea to put people that they hadn't invested very much money at the sharp end of bomb disposal. Blimey. Well, anyway, hero, hero, heroic figure, heroes all, in moustache news, and now it's time for Christopher and your letters. Bulging post bags full of letters. Poor old postman's been sweating up the garden path with them. There were two great topics this week, Iraq and the World Cup. <clears throat> Best to say nothing about the one, but the other developed uh, beyond just a knee-jerk reaction to blame Tony Blair. Did it? Well, there was a thoughtful letter from Peter Williams of Burton in Dorset who said... Requests to America, supported by Britain, to use air power against ISIS should be treated with circumspection, since it would mean taking sides, supporting a Shia regime led by Nouri al-Maliki, the autocratic prime minister, against a Sunni minority. What Mr Williams thought is that the Iraq construct, as he calls it, is broken. The West, he said, should not waste energy trying to prevent this. As a preamble to what comes next, he thought, the Kurds should be allowed to extricate themselves from the chaos of present-day Iraq by forming an independent state. Well, that's one point of view. I wonder what the Turks think would think about that. Or indeed Syrians or uh, well, the Iranians. Well, the Turks are doing quite a lot of thinking, um, and they're all part of the jigsaw. It's a rather difficult jigsaw since it's on fire, as it were. Exactly. It makes it more difficult to put the places in. It's astonishing to think, Christopher, that it was a decade ago that I was in Iraq covering the war there, and um, it seems now, a decade on, a more unstable place than it was even when I was there, and that's saying something. It's a matter of enormous heartache for me, I have to say, to see this, and uh, makes me ponder again and again about the wisdom of our intervention there, as I guess it has many of our readers. Sir, certainly it has. I'm, we're very glad that you're here rather than there, that dangerous place, but we have other brave correspondents getting the news in from there. Another worry was of returning British jihadists who'd been fighting in Iraq, coming back to Britain and bringing terror of one kind or another with them. William Hague and David Cameron have been warning of this. Blowback, uh, it's called, isn't it, in the intelligence circles? Is that what they call it? Yes. Well, uh, one reader, Barry Wheeler of Hadlow in Kent, uh, said that those who seek to harm this nation should forfeit their right to live in our society. So he's all for keeping them out somehow. Yet at the same time, Mr Wheeler reflected, I feel that the spectre of human rights law will appear once again to uphold their safe return to Britain. Mm -hmm. So that's a pessimistic way of looking at things. Yes. Away from Iraq, uh, interesting bit of recent history concerning the love-hate relationship between Oxford and Margaret Thatcher. Oh, yes, I heard about this. Tell well, Dr Alice Prokaska, the principal of Somerville College, where Margaret Roberts, as she then was, had been studying... Chemistry she was, wasn't she, a chemist? Chemistry and law, I think. One, one led to the other. Mm -hmm. She wrote in response to a piece by Charles Moore, who's our co columnist and an acclaimed biographer of the big, fat and very interesting biography of Margaret Thatcher. Mm -hmm. Well, Dr Prokaska 
wrote that Charles Moore expresses a very widespread sense of disappointment at the University of Oxford's snob to Margaret Thatcher when, in 1985, she was denied the honorary degree which she had been nominated for. Mm. But the principal of Somerville quoted uh, from a letter that Mrs Thatcher had written in 1980, the year after uh, her successful general election victory when she became prime minister. Mm -hmm. So writing to Somerville from Downing Street... Mrs Thatcher wrote, It was such a privilege to be there. Without that, Somerville, she means, I'd never been here, Downing Street. She added, One last thought, or is it a feeling? I loved those years. I really did. Gosh, it's not often that one hears Margaret Thatcher being sentimental, I suppose. Yes, well, she did have that side to her, and that comes out well in Charles Moore's book. She wasn't just a, a thinking machine. Christopher, I see your next item is, a, is something which everybody knows about, and I know about particularly why people in the middle of the row at the theatre arrive later than the people at the end. It seems as night follows day that the last two seats in any row at the theatre will be the ones right in the middle. And Doesn't it just? One theory is that they're not very well organised, the people who have seats in the middle of the row, because... They only get those seats because they leave booking until the last moment. They're the only ones they can get. I but on the other be the hand, best seats, they? In the middle of the row. Yes, that's what somebody else wrote in saying: if you're in the middle of the row, you get the view that the director intended during rehearsals. So they're the best seats. And somebody indeed wrote in saying, "Well, that's what that's what we did." Nevertheless, as soon as they take their seats in the middle of the row, they have to stand up because somebody from the right crosses them to sit in their seat on the left-hand side mm. and then somebody from the left crosses them to reach their seat on the right-hand side. Possibly, possibly. Another thread on the letters page that poddled along nicely mm. this week was the subject of music uh, played at inappropriate moments. You know, uh, you're on hold and the music played is Louis Armstrong's We Have All the Time in the World, uh, yes. that sort of thing. That's well, one reader called Sue Pickard, mm. who comes from Epsom Downs, very topical in Surrey, mm -hmm. since the racing's on, she wrote... I was offered the option of listening to a tape during a brain scan following surgery to remove a tumour. I lay there and listened to I Just Can't Get You Out of My Head. That Kylie Minogue song. Well, luckily, she added, the scan was clear. Good for her. I'm Happy so pleased ending. to hear that. I'm so pleased to hear that. What a tale. I like it when readers explode erroneous myths. Mm -hmm. One connected with uh, Brazil, the seat of the <clears throat> World Cup, mm -hmm. uh, came from Roger Croston from Crystalton in Cheshire. He was writing about Henry Wickham, the man reputed to have smuggled rubber tree seeds out of Brazil in the 19th century. Well, Mr Croston had a, had a better story. He said that, financed by the British government of India, old Wickham mm. bought 70,000 seeds at £10 per hundred, quite expensive. Very expensive. In an operation um, in 1876, he chartered a, a steamship called Amazonas mm -hmm. and exported them with the goodwill and cooperation of the Brazilian government to Kew Gardens, where of the 70,000, 2,800 germinated. Most of those were sent out to Ceylon or Singapore and Java. So there it is. You live and learn, don't you? And That's then right. you forget it all. Did you illustrate this for the readers? Well, we did. We had a rather odd picture by Wolfgang... Sushitsky, he's a photographer who was born in 1912 
as far as I'm aware, hasn't died. It's still around. So it's over 100 now if he survives. Mm-hmm. And it was a photograph of masked rubber glove moulds. They look like hands raised for strike action, you know, in the bad old days of British Leyland. And very creepy they look too. So were they dipped in the molten rubber and then pulled out? How did they I'm work? not really conversant with the method of producing rubber gloves, but I, I don't think you need to have people having their hands sprayed with rubber <laughs> and then peeling them off one by one, or that would be a way of doing it. They have little moulds instead, which are presumably flexible in some way. We'll look into that before next okay. week. Christopher, many thanks for this week's letters. Now, one of the greats of jazz music died this week, Horace Silver, the pianist and composer. He's been a huge influence on the genre ever since he first played in New York in 1950. Let's hear about Horace Silver now from jazz writer and broadcaster Dave Gelly, author of the recent book An Unholy Row, A History of Jazz in Britain from 1945 to 1960. So, Dave, we're here to talk about Horace Silver. Thanks so much for joining us. Tell us a little bit about how significant a figure Horace Silver was and how he provided what might be considered an East Coast alternative to the West Coast cool of Miles Davis in post-war jazz. Well, the first thing about Horace, I think, to 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 uh, to mention would be that he he was like a bundle of enthusiasm. I mean, cool jazz was a bundle of not showing too much enthusiasm, you know. And 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 Horace was utterly committed. He was enthusiastic and he was cheerful. This this was another thing which was rather <laughs> rather rather shocking at the time. Um, and uh, his very first uh, sort of introduction to the big time was via Stan Getz, who who was scheduled to play at a club. Um, and uh, there was Horace, who was very young at the time, about 22. And, um, and Stan was absolutely taken with him. He was so different from everybody. And, and Stan immediately hired him and his whole trio to be his accompanist. And it made a big difference not only to, to, to Horace's career, but also to Stan gets his own playing, which suddenly perked up like mad in 1950-51, once he'd got Horace behind him. Absolutely, because um, Horace then made it, that was in Connecticut, that Hartford, Connecticut, Hartford, that, Connecticut that yeah. club, and uh, then Horace the next year, it was 1950, moved to New York, and his, his golden years really were the next two decades, weren't they, 1950-1960, so, yes. so how, um, what did he accomplish in those two decades, would you say? Well, um, the interesting thing about Horace was that he had a, a wonderful gift for m- making tunes, and that doesn't mean to say the like, 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 um, what do they call them? Like hooks, you know, little yeah. bits of thing, but the whole tunes, and almost the first. One of the very first things he did was a, a piece called Opus to Funk, which is only a 12-bar blues. But once once it goes, once you sort of get it in your head, you can't get it out, and it was one of those. And he continued to do this. He made tunes like um, Sister Sadie was one of them, The Preacher, a lot of them slightly gospely. And he got that from his mother, who was uh, sang in the church choir, and she introduced him to gospel music. And, of course, he got uh, another influence from his father, who was of Cape Verdean descent, and, and that Cape Verdean influence really comes through in Horace's music, doesn't it? It does. From the point... His father, actually, who, who sort of um, got him doing that, because his father said, well, you're doing all this stuff. Why don't you do some of the stuff that you've, 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 you've heard? It. You've heard, you know, me listening to it around the house. Why don't you put some of it in? And he wrote um, a thing called Cape Verdean Blues, and he also wrote a whole album called Song for My Father, which has a lovely picture of his dad on the front. And um, from there on, the, he incorporated uh, 
that particular sort of strain of sort of spanish while well, it was Portuguese, you know, uh, music in with it, in with the rest of it. Tell us about Horace's talent as a band leader, because as a quintet leader, he got some of the great, great players playing with him. He was a talent spotter extraordinaire, wasn't he? Well, he was, and, and uh, for instance, he had the two guys that he had as his trumpet and uh, tenor saxophone player for a long time, the basis of the, of the quintet were Blue Mitchell and Junior Cook, both of whom just well, well, they 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 were in, became in sort of inseparable. You, you, the, the sound of Junior Junior Cook and Blue Mitchell was the sound of the Horace Silver Quintet, and they went on to great things. There were also Joe Henderson. He joined him, um, and he he's, he became a very big name. Both the Brecker brothers. Um, that's um, uh, my, my, Michael Brecker and Randy Brecker. Uh, on trumpet and saxophone, they joined him later on. So jazz names plenty went through that band. Art Farmer went through that band. So many. Almost as many as went through Art Blakey's Jazz Messengers. Absolutely, which, of course, we should mention, the Jazz Messengers, that Horace Silver had a hand in that. He was the uh, co-founder. We associate the Messengers so much with Art Blakey, but Horace Silver was there at the beginning too. He was, and and, uh, one one of their... Very, very first records had one of his, two of his tunes, um, Echo and Nika's Dream, which both of which uh, became jazz standards. And he had this amazing way of being able to, if, if he wrote an arrangement of somebody else's tune, it would end up sounding as though he'd written it. There's, uh, on, on one of his early records, there's a version of I'll Know Where My Guy Comes Along, which, which is a song from Guys and Dolls. But if you listen to it, it sounds exactly like a Horace... The way he was arranged it, it sounds exactly like a Horace Silver composition. Mm. He was a quite extraordinary person from that point of view. He was, and of course his comp- compositions became standards, but they, they encompassed a whole gamut of tunes from Nika's Dream, which you mentioned, which is a complex harmonic composition, oh, yeah. to these very simplistic tunes like Doodlin, which are little motifs which really catch you and, and, and want you want to hum. So he could do the full range from simple to complex, couldn't he? That's right, and sometimes they got a bit... Of, um, the, the, the Blue Note, when he, when he first brought the preacher along, said, oh, no, come on, Horace, now this is really, you know, <laughs> this is a bit simple, isn't it, you know? And he said, no, 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 this, this is it, this is it, you know, and he played it, and the preacher became, uh, well, everybody did that, and it, it's, it's actually based on the chords of um, Show Me the Way to Go Home. I mean, it's ever such a simple tune, but it's... It, it, it's catchy, yes. <laughs> Certainly. Now, um, Dave, of course, in the 80s and 90s, he turned to music for his holistic interests, which didn't catch the critics' eyes so much. But he kept on touring and kept on with his quintets, and he kept on playing very well in clubs uh, like Ronnie Scott's here in London for a long, long time, didn't he? Yes, he did. He didn't... He, 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 he only would tour for a couple of months of the year because he said otherwise he, he just got too much. Um, I don't think he particularly liked being a band leader on the road. I mean, <laughs> you know, with all everybody depending on him. But um, he did go. I mean, I heard him at Ronnie Scott several times, and uh, he was he was a delightful as a band leader on the stage. You know, because he he was just the sort of uh, 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 a fount of, of 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 enthusiasm and and fun. You know. Absolutely. And where would you rank him finally in the in the sort of charts of, of post-war jazz musicians? Is he up there with Miles Davis and Art Blakey? Well, he's certainly up there with Art Blakey. Um, I, I think he's... he's yes, he, he was very, very uh, um, influential on 
so many people, and you listen to them today, and there are so many these um, hard bop quintets uh, coming out of uh, of guys coming out of colleges that are all trying to sound as much as they possibly can, like the Horace Silver Quintet of 1959. It's extraordinary. Dave Gelly, thanks so much for coming in and talking to us today about Horace Silver. You're very welcome. There you go, Horace Silver there with Dave Gelly. Christopher, are you a jazz fan? Oh, yes, I like jazz. I've got a rather narrow but very keen uh, kind of jazz. I like Thelonious Monk, who's a peculiar maverick. Mm. And I like bebop, I like Charlie Parker. But there we are. I was very entertained by a letter which came in this week from the Pagan Federation. Do you get many letters from them? Not a great number, but they're worried about something particular at the moment, and that's the acronym ISIS for those jihadists rampaging through Iraq. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. The pagan president wrote in to say that the Fellowship of ISIS is a worldwide organisation with thousands of members in many countries. The acronym ISIS is likely to form an inadvertent association in the minds of hearers between Sunni jihadists and followers of the goddess Isis, with the potential for harm to innocent people from a completely different religion. Blimey. Gosh, when I was in Greece, Christopher, I met some pagans there who were still following the Greek gods of old, and they used to go to temples and wear togas and things, and they were quite normal. I think the word still there is uh, presuming too much. It sounds like a revival to me. That's it. Don't forget that if you have anything to add, you can contact us via Twitter on at Telegraph Obit. I'm at Harry DeQ. You can also email us with your suggestions and comments on the deadline at telegraph.co.uk. For Christopher and the Letters team, what's your Twitter handle, Christopher? Letters Desk is our Twitter place. And at that's Letters it. Desk, yes. Yes, at Letters Desk. Very lively it is too. And the email address? If you want to send a letter by email, send it to DT Letters. That's all one word, DT Letters at telegraph.co.uk. All the obits mentioned in today's show are on our website. Until next week, this has been the deadline.